Welcome, everyone, to episode 92, Stem Cells for Arthritis. I'm Dr. Kiki, here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. How are you doing over there, Dalen? I'm hanging in there. My joints are aching, though. This is the show for me. After every weekend, <laughs> running after my kids, I feel it so bad. Are you one of those weekend warriors where you go I'm out? I'm not even a warrior. I'm a real wimp. I'm a weekend <laughs> wimp. But when I come out of it, I'm all busted up. So I'm like sitting here at your standing desk running a marathon or something. I'm, I'm like laid up in my easy chair <laughs> just listening to my joints creak. So I hope Dr. Oh, Gilak today can, can give me some good news. I mean, I'm counting on it. I'm not going to lie. I need it. I know. As we all get older, the threat of arthritis looms. And I'm looking forward to some easy treatments. No knee replacements, no hip replacements. I want these things to regrow themselves. Come on. Exactly. Augment. Don't replace augment. Yeah, that's right. Augment. Stronger, better, faster. We will be the bionic people (laughs) of the future. Okay, time to get down to business. Make sure you check us out at stemcellpodcast.com where you will find all of our past episodes and other great resources. And of course, follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook. And of course, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher so new episodes automatically will download to your phone. Fancy technology. All right, we have this wonderful show today, and we're going to discuss the latest and greatest in stem cell news and science. And we will, as we said, interview Dr. Farshid Gilak about his recently published work describing how we might be able to use stem cells to treat arthritis. But first, let's round it up. You ready, Dalen? I'm almost ready. As always, though, before we do that roundup, we're going to remind our listeners of one of Connexon's original newsletters, Mesenchymal Cell News. Guys, mesenchymal cells are coming up, as you will hear today in the show. Mesenchymal cells, they pretty much do a lot of stuff that's good, all right? Mesenchymal Stem Cell News is covering both in vivo and in vitro research. It keeps subscribers current with the latest publications, industry, and policy news, as well as jobs and events related to MSC research. Join more than 4,000 subscribers and almost 3,000 Twitter followers for free at www.mesenchymalcellnews.com. All right, Kiki, I want to hear about some science. Get started. Science! All right. You have kids. I have a kid. Yeah. Be honest, how often did you, when they were younger, and do you now, let them use your smartphone or an iPad or just plop them in front of the television? I can't put a number on it. It's too much, though. It's way too much, if I'm honest, but I put it on my wife. She's the one that just runs stuff. I'm just showing up. You know what I'm She's saying? in charge. But it's, too it's, much. Her, it's her fault. It's her fault, for Christ's sake. I'm passing the buck. But it's too much, Kiki. It's, it's too much for me, for Christ's sake. Too much screens in everybody's life. Yeah, I have the same failing, I'm sure. But anyone who's busy, you know, there is that moment in your life where you're like, babysitter, okay, here you go. I just got it. And here it is. So the American Academy of Pediatrics recently put out guidelines on how much screen time young kids should get, but there really wasn't a lot of evidence behind it. And so there is work that has been presented this last week at the 2017 Pediatric Academic Society's meeting in San Francisco by Julia Ma. She and her colleagues at the University of Toronto found that In children younger than two, the more time they spent with a handheld screen, so this isn't just a TV, the more likely they were to show signs of delayed speech development. They used information from nearly 900 children's 18-month checkups. Parents answered a questionnaire about their child's mobile media use, and then they filled out a checklist to identify heightened risk of speech problems. And it usually is a screening tool that picks up the potential signs of trouble, but doesn't actually offer a diagnosis of the delay. Turns out that one in five of the toddlers used handheld screens. Those kids had an average usage per day of about half an hour. 
which doesn't seem like that much, right? They didn't find a very strong relationship. There was a lot of variation with the numbers that they did have, but there was a link between that handheld screen time and potential delays in expressive language. Additionally, in April, in scientific reports, a different group looked at the relationship of screen time to, especially with handheld devices, and sleep. And they found that kids from six months old to three years, the more use they had of handheld devices, the less sleep they got at night. And so about every additional hour of touching screen use is linked to about 15 minutes less sleep over 24 hours, according to the surveys that parents filled out. Finally, by analyzing 20 independent studies, there's an earlier study even that found a similar link between this portable screen use and less sleep among older children. And so Ben Carter of King's College London says these kind of results, they offer a pretty consistent message that the findings from older children translate into younger kids as well. So we don't know exactly how screen time affects kids yet, but the trends are pointing in the direction that it's, you know, not that great. So American Academy of Pediatrics still discourages screens before 18 months of age and for all children during meals or in bedrooms. <laughs> <laughs> Very specific. You know, it's one of those things. It's like your intuition tells you, like, if this is making my life easier at all, then it's probably not good. It's probably not the right choice. And the other thing is, if it's not good for older kids, it's even worse for younger. In that really tender age where the brain is developing, clearly, I say go with whatever, you know, Mother Nature did for you, which is do a lot of goo-goo-gaga with the kid and engage them as a human being, mm -hmm. not as a screen. Come on. But who am I to talk? Yeah. I barely even see my kids. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that the language development has a lot to do with interaction. And so the more you're relying on a screen that the kid is interacting with, the less there's a language interaction where they're able to see you speaking, interact with you, and potentially mimic you in return. The sleep stuff, I think that's really interesting. And I'd love to know why. Why does it affect sleep? I'd love to know more about that. But anyway, this is the trend and worth thinking about for all parents out there and babysitters. Because if you're a babysitter, making a digital babysitter in the hands of a child, come on, what are we paying you for? Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> a recent study looking at breast cancer cells in the biology of genomes meeting May 9th, a geneticist Elaine Martis reported that. Not like the traditional idea of the spread of breast cancer. When you have metastasis of breast cancer, it's historically been thought that there's a single rogue cell that escapes to some other part of the body and starts the cancer there. But what she and her team found is that when breast cancer spreads, it's actually doing so in groups of ready-to-do-battle tumor cells. So they did a genetic study looking at the breast tumors from 16 women who died after their cancer had spread to other parts of the body. Comparing the metastasized tumors with the original breast tumors, they found that multiple slightly genetically different cells from the original site had actually broken away altogether to establish the new tumors. There's not direct evidence of this group migration in human cancer, but what they're finding are these genetic similarities between the metastasized and the original tumor cells that actually suggest this group movement. Only two women in the study had cancer-driving mutations in an estrogen receptor gene called ESR1 in their recurrent tumors that were not seen in the original, but all of the tumors that metastasized contained mutations in the TP53 gene. And so this could be something that if further research supports it, this gene, the TP53 gene having mutations could be a warning sign that it could spread. This is maybe a very important study for determining whether or not a cancer will go on to metastasize dangerously. Yes, if they, they travel in gangs. That's right. It's the whole metaphor. These yep. rogue tumor cells running through the neighborhood. 
Yeah, it's not just that single rogue. It's a gang of rogues all together. It's a small study. These are 16 women, so this may not be representative of breast cancer populations as a whole. Still, I think it's a good idea. It against, goes against the dogma. It does. I love it when science goes against the dogma. It's like, you've been thinking something for so long and you were potentially wrong. <laughs> I love the way you make it a cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on. My not weekend warrior co-host, maybe <laughs> as you're sitting there in your desk, you could benefit from an exercise pill. Oh, well, clearly you don't need it because you're running while you're giving this talk. That's right. right. I'm moving around. In, Kudos to you. <laughs> in the May 2nd issue of Cell Metabolism, researchers reported on a drug that they gave to sedentary mice that allowed them to exercise like endurance athletes. Without this drug, mice ran on a wheel for about 160 minutes before they got exhausted. But when they were given this drug for eight weeks, they started running for 270 minutes on average. They were burning fat, like trained, conditioned athletes, even though these were just couch potato mice. Can I just ask, I'm sorry, but was the drug meth? <laughs> no, this drug is not meth. It's called GW501516. Oh. And it's actually been under study for more than a decade. Uh, I think it was developed by GlaxoSmithKline. And previous research has found it can improve endurance, but only when combined with regular exercise. And what these researchers want to do is not have a drug that can be abused by high-performance athletes trying to get into various competitions, but actually as something that can help people who cannot exercise. So if you're bedridden, sick, disabled, elderly, obese, diabetic, don't have the stamina to get up and go and have even short amounts of exercise, something like this kind of drug that can boost metabolism and change the way the body's metabolism works, it could promote fat burning and also muscular development and endurance that could lead to changes in behavior and lead to, in the case of being sick, disabled, or elderly, actually improving in your abilities, or if you're obese or diabetic, allowing you to be able to get up and do something. The researcher says, we know a lot about exercise, but we still don't know how we obtain all the benefits. And so the next step is to move on past mice and to see whether or not this is actually going to work in people as well. And so they looked at something like a thousand genes, and this actually tricks the body into thinking that it's trained and conditioned. And in endurance athletes, they use the glucose in their blood more slowly and can rely on fat stores to allow them to go longer before hitting the so-called wall where they can't go anymore. Whereas if you're not trained, your body will use up all of the blood glucose much more quickly before shifting to fat burning and you hit the wall earlier. I see. Okay. So that idea of exercise, I'm sure everyone there is sitting, okay, I take this pill and I get like ripped. But the truth is, it's just you get endurance. You don't like get skinny and like muscular or maybe you do or is this maybe i mean i don't think they had you know ripped mice <laughs> <laughs> in this study well that's a shame but if you are improving you know going from a sedentary mouse to one that can actually run much longer then eventually that's going to change the body type of that animal so maybe it'll work mice are going to get ripped some point the mice will be ripped is all that's all i want <laughs> It's going to be Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, my last story is a fascinating study. As a physiologist, I learned about how the heart works. The heart, we have the pacemaker cells and these cardiomyocytes, these cells, they rhythmically contract to electrical signals and they pass this electrical signal from one cell to the next. And it's like this wave of electrical activity that passes across the heart and triggers the muscle contraction that actually is the heart pumping and beating that allows the blood to pump through the body. We've just known this forever, right? We've got these heart cells, electrical transmission, muscle pump, there you go. But now, ah, this is so exciting. A new study, cell biologist 
Matthias Narendorf at Harvard Medical School accidentally discovered that macrophages are involved. Immune cells, macrophages, stick themselves to the cardiomyocytes, kind of in between them, and they help the heart cells receive the signals and actually stay on beat. When Narendorf discovered this, he was just curious about how macrophages actually affect the heart. How do these immune cells, what do they do to the heart? And so he tried to perform a cardiac MRI on a mouse that was genetically engineered to have no immune cells. The heartbeat in this mouse was too slow and irregular to perform the scan. So without immune cells, the heart was not working right. It wasn't conducting electricity efficiently and it wasn't pumping well. And so the symptoms pointed to a problem in the atrioventricular node, bundle of muscle fibers that connects the upper and lower chambers of the heart. And usually if there are AV node irregularities in humans, people might need to put a pacemaker in there to keep it going. But these researchers found that in healthy mice, macrophages were concentrated in the AV node. They took the heart macrophages out and tested them for electrical activity, and there was nothing really weird or electrical about them. But there's something about the macrophage with a cardiomyocyte. The two cells communicate electrically, and then the cardiomyocytes transmit this signal and pump better. So this is this crazy shift in our understanding of how the heart pump works. Why? Why? Why is the immune system involved? Why macrophages? That's weird. So weird. Yeah. So now the question is, are immune cells part of the problem in heart rhythm irregularities in people? So we found this in mice. Now the next question is, are they involved in the human heart in the same way? And are they maybe part of the cause of some problems that people have? It's fascinating. I can't even think. I can't even imagine. Immune and heartbeat, they're like, totally different ends of the spectrum biology i know i know i'm loving this story i'm just like oh wow this you know what's amazing this is one of those that. studies where they're just it's in cell because they're like look at this it doesn't make any sense <laughs> but it's true now someone else go figure it out yeah but that's i mean wow that's just it, it raises a lot of questions i mean that's that's to say the least to say the least there are many studies that are going to come out of this discovery Absolutely. Who knows? Maybe instead of getting a pacemaker in the future, you'll get, you know, maybe macrophage stem cells or something pumped into your heart. Boom. There you go. Um, Cell therapy for arrhythmia now. We got it. Yeah. All right. Tell me some stem cell news. I, mean, I need to just take a minute. But, all right. <laughs> I know, recover. right? <laughs> all right. Now, my story seems so paltry, but I'll give it a shot anyway. Actually, no, they're not paltry. These are big deal stories. They are. First, let's talk about ALS. Uh, you know ALS. Yeah. Lou Gehrig's disease. It's a progressive neurodegenerative disease that affects neuronal cells in the brain and in the spinal cord, which sends signals to control muscles throughout the body. So the progressive degeneration of the motor neuron cells leads to death in these patients that have ALS. And more than 6,000 Americans each year are diagnosed with this condition. So researchers at University of South Florida, it's a miracle they get anything done over there. They're just partying all the time. Specifically led by Svetlana Garbuzova-Davis, the lead scientist, they show in a new study that bone marrow stem cell transplants help to improve motor function and nervous system conditions in mice that model the disease, the ALS, and that these bone marrow stem cells work by repairing damage to the blood spinal cord barrier. So this was published in scientific reports, and it's an early step in pursuing stem cells for like a therapeutic regenerative approach for repairing the blood spinal cord barrier, which has been identified as a key factor in the development of ALS. So what they do? They took uh, stem cells from human bone marrow. They transplanted them into these mice modeling ALS uh, that were already beginning to show the onset of disease symptoms. And this treatment delayed the progression of the disease and led to improved motor function in the mice, as well as uh, increased motor neuron cell survival. So 
the idea there is that these cells are actually contributing to the repair of this blood spinal cord barrier. And the key here is that the mice that received higher doses of the stem cells fared better in this study. So they regained more mobility. And the, looking at the, the cells that came out of this, they showed that the transplanted bone marrow stem cells differentiate into endothelial cells, which form the inner lining of blood vessels and provide a barrier between the blood and the spinal cord. So it's kind of a showing that these mesenchymal stem cells directly contributed to the repair of this barrier. And, you know, the, the damage to this barrier is recognized very clearly. I think there's consensus now that this is a major factor in ALS development. So it's a potential trajectory for researchers to work on repairing that barrier and delay onset of ALS. So it's kind of like when you think ALS, you're thinking neural and neurodegeneration. Yeah. But a major part of this study is maybe just leading to ameliorating disease onset by repairing the barrier between the blood and the spinal cord. That would be a major step. Yeah. I mean, it's a big yeah. deal. I guess maybe there's some element of it could be like a immune infiltration or something. Again, raises right. questions. What is it there that's leading to the acceleration of the disease symptoms, but clearly I think restoring that barrier could be one way of getting the system back to equilibrium. That would be awesome. I love it. It's a big deal, and it's so, these degenerative diseases, they really break your heart. So one that could certainly use a therapeutic approach, not much there as it stands, a tragic, tragic condition. Ah, looking at disease and the genetic basis of disease, moving on to the next story, this is IPS cells. So you know, we've been talking about IPS cells as this great model of genetic diversity in humans, and uh, you can get autologous regenerative cells for patients. There's thousands and thousands of these IPS cells that have been derived in, in the scientific field across many different studies. But this one study, it put out one of the world's largest sets of human stem cell lines from healthy people. Okay, this is 711 induced pluripotent stem cell lines derived from 301 healthy volunteers. This was released by a large European consortium and published in the journal Nature. So these lines took four years to establish and show a lot of variation in the genome is pretty much, it comes down to differences between healthy individuals. So, you know, we've talked about this idea that humans are 99 point whatever percent alike, but, you know, what this study is showing that the, the phenotypic differences, the differences that we see can be chalked up to genetic differences between healthy individuals. And this is a great resource and a stepping stone for researchers to make better cell models of a whole spectrum of diseases because they can understand disease and study disease risk in many cell types, looking at those cell types in healthy individuals and looking at cells that are normally inaccessible. This is all according to Dr. Daniel Gaffney, who is the lead study author at the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute, which is also part of the Human Induced Pluripotent Stem Cell Initiative Project. To quote Professor Fiona Watt, who is also involved with the study, we were able to show similar characteristics of iPS cells from the same person and revealed that up to 46% of the differences that we saw in iPS cells were due to differences between healthy individuals. These data will allow researchers to put disease variations into context. So, you know, another right. story of getting these massive databases and trying to cull some meaningful information from them. We'll see how that pans out. But at least we have the platform here. We have a strong foundation with these hundreds of induced pluripotent stem cell lines. And I, I can imagine a lot of uh, important studies are going to come out of this resource. When you look at the problems that people have, you're like, oh, this genetic mutation, that genetic mutation. But then there, sometimes you do these screens and there are all these genetic mutations that may be related to the disease development and you're not necessarily sure which ones are and which ones aren't. And so if you can take out just the ones that are related just to generic differences, right. then that's a huge step in determining which ones are actually disease related. Yes, exactly. I'm glad you mentioned that. The key point and takeaway from this study is that you can separate the wheat from the chaff this way. Yeah. You kind of like eliminated all the normal by uh, this resource. So <laughs> Eliminate the normal. <laughs> Who cares? Boring. Uh, snore. <laughs> Get some disease in here. Well, we've got plenty of disease IPSL lines, so 
Now we have the perfect compliment. Healthy IPS cell lines. Well, talking about healthy and not healthy, everyone knows we need our vitamins. And people always, you know, oh, vitamin A, you got to have vitamin A. Who knows why? Well, I'll tell you why. There's a whole spectrum of disease. People usually, they understand it in terms of vision, you know. Lack of vitamin A can lead to night blindness and ultimately leads to a lot of death around the world, vitamin A deficiency. But lack of vitamin A also has a detrimental effect on the hematopoietic system in the bone marrow. This is the blood-forming system. And this deficiency causes a loss in important blood stem cells. This is according to scientists from the German Cancer Research Center and the Heidelberg Institute of Stem Cell Research and Experimental Medicine. They're reporting now in the latest issue of the journal Cell some results that will open up new prospects in cancer therapy. So we know that there's these adult stem cells. It's skin, hair, stem cells are a real notable example that are just constantly going your whole life so that they can replenish the skin stem cells that you're constantly sloughing off or the hair you're losing. Poor bald people, I, I pity you. I'll be right there with you shortly enough. Oh, my gosh. But there's these other mechanisms in stem cells that are like, I think, maybe arguably more important. And that's the, the kind of acute response stem cells. There's hematopoietic stem cells in particular that are kind of dormant in the bone marrow. And in response to some kind of insult or need, they'll be mobilized into circulation and they'll proliferate a ton and they'll reconstitute the hematopoietic system. But there's the mechanisms that activate these specialized dormant stem cells, and then lead them to go to sleep again, as it were, are relatively unknown. And this is important because we got to understand what the modulatory factors are here so that we can mobilize a response. And as I'll get to later, it may be important down the line to figure out how we can suppress that mobilization. But what the scientists did here now is that they showed that there was an important factor, which is retinoic acid, which is a vitamin A metabolite. That's a critical factor in this mobilization process. And if the substance is absent, this retinoic acid is absent, active stem cells are unable to return to a dormant state. And instead of becoming dormant, they differentiate into these specialized downstream blood cells. So when that happens, they're lost as a reservoir and the stem cell pool ultimately is diminished. So you need this to get them back to dormancy. This not only enhances our understanding of just the system and how vitamin A deficiency can actually lead to an underlying immune defects because that's been long known. But also, it provides interesting prospects for cancer treatment. There's evidence that cancer cells, there's this so-called cancer stem cell, particularly in hematological malignancies, blood cancers, that are thought to, like healthy stem cells, go into dormancy and hide out and therefore evade chemotherapeutic approaches until later on when the drugs are cleared and then they go back into circulation and cause a recurrence of the cancer. So the idea here is if you could sequester retinoic acid from these cells and not allow them to re-enter this dormant state, that maybe you could mobilize the whole cancer stem cell pool and therefore deplete it with the chemotherapeutic regimen. So this is on both sides of the coin here, both mobilizing an effective immune response in healthy individuals, but also in suppressing dormancy of cancer stem cells in, can in patients uh, that are affected by blood cancer. This is therapeutic in two important ways. So a big deal for hematopoiesis. Yeah, this is exciting. I mean, it's going to potentially give us more information also about just development of the human system. You know, we've got Vitamin A is something that's very important for pregnant women to make sure they're getting in their diet for their developing babies. And so from beginning to potentially cancerous end. <laughs> <Man>. <laughs> yes. Yeah, there are lots of places that this could be very useful information. Yes, indeed. Both sides of the spectrum, they're beginning to end. And now for my last story, I'm going to the beginning. Thanks for the segue. This is a study in of germ cells. So human germline cells, it's just background briefly. It's a really interesting cell type because when the embryo first implants and starts to develop in mammals or mouse and human and primates and similar, at least a little pocket of cells, these primordial germ cells that will ultimately give rise to all of your germ cells in your body, they're set aside and they ultimately form 
your germ cells, but in a strange way. They migrate along the axis of the embryo from the site where they began as a group, and they end up colonizing the gonad, which is a future ovary or testis. And then that interaction with the gonad has a two-way signaling. The gonad tells the cells to become mature and to proliferate and become the more you know, mature germ cells. But the germ cells also tell the gonad to become a specific gonad. And this is important. It's a bipotential gonad. Hmm. And until the germ cells come in there and inform the gonad to become an ovary or a testis, it has dual potential. For example, if you took XY germ cells and put them into an XX bipotential gonad, that XX gonad that would normally become ovary will become testis. So the interactions between these two cell types is really important, not just for basic understanding, but also in the quest to get germ cells, gametes from stem cells. It's critically important to understand the signaling inputs that are educating these primordial germ cells along their journey to the bipotential gonad. So with that as a maybe not so brief background, I'll tell you about Ji Kiao's lab and their tremendous work where they actually did single cell RNA sequencing. So this is tremendously challenging. You can imagine with germ cells that are so scarce, not only that, but from human embryos. So they got aborted human fetuses, different time points during gestation, and they performed signal cell RNA sequencing, not only on each germ cell, but also on the niche components along their journey, the cells that the germ cells were complexed with in their niche, ultimately in the gonad niche. And what this did, by looking at this, the germ cells and the niche cells, they deciphered some of the essential milestones during germ cell development, the sequential activation of a succession of genes during germ cell ontogeny as they mature, which are critical landmarks for us to understand how do we get these cells in vitro from stem cells. But also, they identified the niche-derived factors, the expression of factors that are specifically in discrete niches during germ cell maturation. And this gives us a kind of key. So it gives us the lock, the receptors, and the transcription profiles of the germ cells on the one hand, and the keys to getting to that and causing those signal inputs in the germ cells from the niche on the other hand. So it's a really important study looking at very high single cell whole transcriptome resolution at uh, germ cells during their ontogeny, a really precious resource for anybody studying uh, gametogenesis specifically in the human. So Kiki, we're getting there. This is step by step. What are the developmental changes? Let's just go look at it. Let's exactly. let's characterize it and and determine at what point specific genetics or in this case RNA sequences are involved in changing that landscape. I think this is the biggest deal. Just generally making gametes from stem cells yeah. bioethically in terms of like a bulwark for getting into cell therapy using a single cell that could ultimately be used to treat infertility. You know, a lot of people like to say that IVF is really the first example of cell therapy. Not only that, but ICSI or intracytoplasmic sperm injection is like kind of the first example of a somatic cell nuclear reprogramming. I think that's a stretch, but the point is well made that cell therapy, in terms Mm -hmm. of getting into cell therapy, there's nothing more basic than that first cell. And I think we're going to be pretty close with this kind of work towards generating that first cell, or at least the component that makes up that first cell, the fertilized zygote in vitro, for better or worse, Kiki. I don't know if we should be doing it, but it looks like we're getting pretty close to having the capacity. Yeah. And just understanding how those cells talk to each other and how that communication changes over time. Major part of that process. Major, major. But that's it for me, Keek. The roundup is done. We're moving on now. What's the next thing? We got this great interview coming up. I can't wait. Yeah, but before we get into our interview, Stem Cell Technologies wants to let us know about a product line called Mesencult. Mm. For mesenchymal stem and progenitor cell research, a variety of mesencult media and reagents are specifically developed and optimized to derive, expand, and differentiate MSCs 
including defined animal component-free media formulations for culturing MSCs to minimize experimental variability and immunogenic concerns. To learn more, please visit www.stemcell.com slash MSC workflow. All right, the Stem Cell Podcast and Stem Cell Technologies are very pleased to welcome Dr. Farshid Gilak, professor in the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at Washington University and director of research for the Shriners Hospitals for Children, St. Louis Shriners. His laboratory is pursuing a multidisciplinary approach to investigate the etiology and pathogenesis of osteoarthritis as a basis for the development of new pharmacologic and stem cell therapies. Osteoarthritis is a painful and debilitating disease of the synovial joints that affects over 27 million people in the United States. Welcome to the show, Dr. Gilak. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. We're very excited to be speaking with you. Can we get started by just telling the audience a bit about you and the focus of your work? Oh, sure. So my laboratory, as you just mentioned, is very interested in studying arthritis. And most of our work has been in osteoarthritis, but more recently, we've also started working in more of the inflammatory or autoimmune forms of arthritis, such as rheumatoid arthritis. And this family of diseases, which is actually probably 100 different diseases that we call arthritis, is probably the number one source of disability in the United States. The problem is that there are, for most forms of arthritis, really no disease-modifying therapies. So for osteoarthritis, for example, which is a degenerative disease of the joints, again, it has many, many forms, but the end stage is that your joints show wear and tear of the cartilage, which is driven biologically as well as mechanically. You sort of go from taking Motrin to having your joint cut out and replaced with a metal and plastic prosthesis. So there's nothing in between that, that helps. We recommend, I'm not a physician, but we recommend exercise weight loss, of course, to help with that. But there are no disease-modifying drugs or therapies. So we've been very interested in trying to develop either pharmacologic therapies that can help regenerate cartilage or stop degeneration. And over the last 10 or 15 years, we've been working in the field of what we call regenerative medicine, which is the use of cells, biomaterials, other techniques to get your body to regenerate itself and basically grow back cartilage and or bone that has worn out. Of course, essential to that often is the use of stem cells so that we can grow large numbers of cells that can then be used to grow replacement tissues such as the cartilage in your joints. We're going to get to the cell-based approaches that you've developed and that were published recently in just a sec. But before we get there, can we just clarify about the constellation of arthritis? There's this rheumatoid autoimmune type, and then there's the more just degenerative as you get older. Is that the osteoarthritis, just what we all feel, you know, in our joints as we get to the advanced age where we start to break down? Is that pretty much the like two me types? right now, going, oh, my <laughs> aching hip? <laughs> yeah, right. you and me both, all of us are getting it. So, osteoarthritis is what's generally been regarded as sort of this age dependent. Your grandmother has it. We're getting to that stage. <laughs> We're getting it. And it's characterized primarily as a disease that shows degeneration of the cartilage, but the bone and the joints remodels. The thinking on this disease has changed a lot in the last few years that it used to be thought of as not being an inflammatory disease. But in fact, there is a large inflammatory component to it. It's just more molecular level inflammation, unlike rheumatoid arthritis, which has a lot of cellular ingrowth and redness and so on. Now, what's turning out to be the case is that osteoarthritis, even this age-related wear and tear disease, isn't just that. It's, there's all different forms of osteoarthritis. The most prominent one after Aging is what we call post-traumatic osteoarthritis. So if you tear a ligament or tear your meniscus or break your knee in an accident or in a sports injury, you're very prone to get osteoarthritis in a very rapid format. The other area that we study quite a bit is obesity-induced osteoarthritis. So obesity is probably the number one preventable risk factor for osteoarthritis. And the link is both biomechanical because you're carrying extra weight, but it actually turns out to be probably more dependent 
on metabolic changes. So some people are calling it metabolic osteoarthritis, where you have inflammation at a very low but chronic level in your body. The same things that have been linked to metabolic syndrome and diabetes and Alzheimer's and all sorts of different diseases that uh, obesity has been associated with, these same factors and cytokines seem to influence joint degeneration also. In that case, is there some amount of synergy between the metabolic inflammation and the biomechanical inflammation to increase the likelihood of degeneration of the joints? Yes, exactly. And so the increased weight adds to it, although we have to say that the weight doesn't explain a lot of the problem. So for example, athletes load their joints way more than an obese person might. You know, an athlete can easily put 10 times their body weight through their joints, and they're not prone to osteoarthritis unless they actually injure themselves. Obese people have a tendency to get more arthritis in their hands, which implies a systemic effect and not something that's related to their body weight, because it's not like your knees and hips where your body weight goes through your hands regularly. There are all these little clues that say it's more of a systemic metabolic disease than a weight-oriented disease. You know, quickly, just while we're on that, you know, my mom, who's a physician, is always telling me, I mean, not that she knows anything. She's a smart lady, but she's told me a bunch of things in our lives together that I've learned since that are just not true. She always said that the key is with, like, not arthritis, but to avoid, like, stiffness and arthritis with age was to maintain mobility and activity. Is that true? And if so, is the maybe, is there some thinking that the link between obesity or increased prevalence of arthritis in obese people is maybe due to like lack of activity? Is there any truth to that? Oh yes, definitely. So right now, one of the first recommendations for people with arthritis is to exercise to the point that they can. So some can't do you know, high impact exercise or weight bearing. So a lot of programs provide, for example, swimming pool based exercises to unload their joints. But movement and exercise is probably one of the best things you can do to, you know, the stiffness, we're not even sure what that is, but is associated with the pain. And it's the first line of treatments, I think, for, for osteoarthritis. So your mom was right. All right, then, mom. Yeah, you can call her up and tell her she was right. And my mom's a physician and she's always right. Also, See, there's the right way to go. You say your mom is always right. <laughs> well, now we I know. <laughs> I had never actually heard, I mean, I've heard of the specifications of osteoarthritis or rheumatoid arthritis, but I had never actually heard of arthritis, as you mentioned, a constellation of various causes, of various diseases, actually. And so how do you go about identifying, you know, so basically this is a symptomatic disease or a symptomatic catch-all that we're calling it. So how do you go about identifying uh, the underlying causes? That's a great question. So what we try to do is using various scientific model systems, whether we study cells in cartilage in a dish or study animals who naturally get arthritis or models of injury-induced arthritis or even clinical studies. We've studied, for example, obese patients who have knee pain and put them through different regimens of weight loss and exercise. You basically have to hone down to one factor, which you think is the responsible one, and test it that way and see if it's actually involved, whether it's a molecular factor or a genetic factor, or in our case, we're very interested in environmental factors. As an example, we're very interested in how diet actually affects your pain and osteoarthritis. And some of our latest studies are showing that it may not even be the weight that you gain, it's what you eat. So we had a recent study where we uh, gave mice all different very high-fat diets, 60% fat, so worse than a McDonald's diet, but we gave some of them with pro-inflammatory fatty acids like saturated fat or omega-6 fatty acids, which are associated with inflammation. We gave another set a supplement of omega-3 fatty acids like fish oils, which are anti-inflammatory. And surprisingly, the ones that got the anti-inflammatory supplements developed less osteoarthritis than the ones, even though they had all had weight gain. We have to hone down on one specific factor, whether it's weight or diet or inflammation or mechanical loading. And that's very difficult to do because they're so interrelated. So we end up combining different systems to do that. 
And so the fish and the chips that I had for dinner last night, they maybe counteracted each other. <laughs> well, it's a good point you make there. I mean, there's all this confusion or I guess debate around good fat, bad fat, and no one seems to be able to put their finger on what's good. Eggs are good. Butter's good. No, it's bad. So, I mean, I guess this is kind of zeroing in on that. You're trying to figure out what are the specific factors. And maybe this is a good segue to get into your actual inflammatory, anti-inflammatory approach in these mouse models. Just, just to summarize very briefly, I'm sorry if I don't elaborate with perfection here. That's for you to do. But just the, the idea that you've captured and we covered it in the last episode was that you're taking cells that would normally be pro-inflammatory and you're kind of psyching them out and replacing that pro-inflammatory signal with an anti-inflammatory signal. So the cells think they're doing what they're supposed to be doing in a pro-inflammatory way, but they're doing the reverse. Can you, you know, talk about that and implications of that and therapeutic applications that may be in the offing? Oh, sure. You wrapped it up perfectly in one sentence. <laughs> That's what we're doing. So our thinking behind this was there's been a, a growing literature, as I'm sure you know, that stem cells have some anti-inflammatory capabilities, that they'll sort of home into areas of inflammation and they may even serve as little uh, medicinal signaling cells has been sort of the new name trying to be given to MSCs, which were previously mesenchymal stem cells. There is this latent ability of stem cells to provide some therapeutic capabilities, but what we found was that they're actually quite sensitive to inflammation and they're not particularly smart. They just do whatever their environment tells them to do and so we can, for example, take a stem cell and push it down a differentiation pathway to make cartilage or make bone or a different tissue. But when we found these stem cells were exposed to inflammatory molecules, they were hypersensitive. And we could make a nice piece of cartilage, but if we put it into a joint that had arthritis or simulated this, the cells would just destroy everything around them. So these cells are very sensitive. So we thought, well, they're sensitive, but they're not very smart. Can we reprogram them and redirect that genetic circuit so that instead of going down an inflammatory pathway, they can actually make a therapeutic molecule, a biologic drug? And since the biologic drug, we can encode the gene for that drug right into their DNA. So we started this project a few years ago, and it was actually a bit difficult because the tools for genome engineering, or specifically gene editing, were a bit complex at that time. The first ones that were used were zinc finger proteins, and then we started to work with talins. Even those are a bit complex, and that's right when the CRISPR-Cas9 revolution occurred. And luckily, we were working on this at that time, and we're able to jump on that technique, which greatly accelerated this ability to now make very specific edits in the genome of the stem cell. So our goal then is to make what we call you know, a designer stem cell, and by making a circuit within the stem cell, we can make them, smart is probably a too strong a word, but we can make one decision. And that decision is when they see an inflammatory signal from a specific molecule, in this case, tumor necrosis factor, which is uh, something that drives rheumatoid arthritis, Instead of making their normal inflammatory response, we inserted the gene in that locus that would make the inhibitor of TNF. And this is a commonly used drug. There's several drugs that are used for rheumatoid arthritis, which focus on inhibiting TNF. The problem with those is that they are given at very high doses at the protein level. So people who have RA sometimes will have to inject two, three times a week with this protein and because of that, their whole immune system can be suppressed and they're prone to infections. So what we wanted to do was have this drug delivered, but only when there's a flare of TNF. So when there's this inflammatory burst, the cells wake up, turn on the drug, shut down the TNF system, and when it's gone, they turn off again. So they're not just pumping out drug continuously, they are actually smart in our eyes. And so would these be injected? Like, say, you've got inflammation in your knees, specifically knee pain. Would they be injected directly into the knees, or would this be something that would be a systemic application? That's a great question. So we're testing all different ways to deliver them now. And I think for different types of disease, we would use different approaches. Something like rheumatoid arthritis is actually a systemic disease, although you see it in your joints 
more. So having some level of systemic delivery might even be better. So in our first experiments with mice, we're actually putting the cells in everywhere, just injecting them in the body and having them set up shop everywhere. In other forms, we can inject into right into the joint where we need to really deliver the cells. And again, because they're stem cells, we can actually grow a piece of cartilage out of them. And so if you have cartilage damage, we can replace the cartilage in the joint with this artificial cartilage, but it's made out of smart stem cells that have that drug delivery capability. Anti-inflammatory cartilage. <laughs> I love it. Yes. Yeah. Go ahead, Dalen. That is an amazing innovation. The, the cartilage, I always thought cartilage was acellular though, is it? There's a residual cellular component that's pumping out the TNF or? Yeah, so cartilage is, it has a relatively low number of cells, but they're metabolically active and they live for as long as you do. They survive in your body for a long time. Now, cartilage has no blood supply or nerves. Uh, that's so it. Cells right. just it's avascular. It's not acellular. Right. Yeah. right. Avascular, aneural, alymphatic. So the only way to get messages to them is to diffuse through the tissue. But the cells are alive, and they do very well under these sort of low oxygen, low metabolism conditions. On that note, I mean, does that mean that you can deliver this in an allogeneic type way? If will they can they evade the immune surveillance? Like, could this be an off-the-shelf product, in other words, for human patients? Exactly. We're really hoping that will work. So the cells are encased in a matrix, so they're actually not exposed to immune cells. Some surgeons actually do allograft transplantation of human cartilage. They'll take a you know a chunk from a cadaver and put it into the joint where it's missing. And that does well for a number of years, but tends to break down after a while. But if we can do something off the shelf, it'll be much easier in a lot of ways. On the flip side, if we can do autologous transplants, make stem cells out of a patient's own cells, then we know we don't have problems with rejection or disease transmission. So it's not clear the best route yet. So we're actually trying both. What are your next steps for actually for trying this? It's all mouse models for the time being? For the time being, yes. So we have a, a number of different things to test. Probably the most important thing is testing the dosing and the ability of the cells to respond in a live animal in a uh, disease setting. In the lab, they do great. So we just have to make sure that how long they'll last in an animal and how fast they respond. Our preliminary studies look great. So at our earliest time points that we've measured anything, which is 20 minutes after they receive a flare of TNF, they're already responding. So they have extremely rapid response times, and we've been able to show that they stay in the body for a week or two so far. We haven't gone longer than that. So things look promising, but we really have to test them and make sure that they work in the disease setting. So in terms of now extending this, let's say, I mean, it's not a new idea of like the therapeutic delivery, you know, the but I think what you've done, which is a real innovation, is you set it up within this genetic circuit, as you alluded to, where a signaling input can lead to a kind of programmed response that you direct. Are you trying to apply that in, it seems like that would be really useful in a lot of other disease contexts too, whatever signal X, which normally drives this genetic circuit, you could replace that suite of genes with something that's therapeutic. Are you trying to extend this to treat other types of disease? Or sharing this with colleagues to that effect, perhaps? Yes, absolutely. So we're sharing this with a number of colleagues who study autoimmune diseases simply because we have the circuits built for all of these anti-inflammatory drug delivery systems. So we have multiple systems built. And there are so many diseases that, that involve dysregulation of inflammation. So things like Crohn's disease, psoriasis, these are all related and, and uh, involve overabundance of inflammatory mediators. The point you make is, is excellent because there are a number of other diseases that are based on dysregulation of some other feedback loop in your body. The obvious example is diabetes, where you're responding to sugar, glucose with an insulin response, and your system is dysregulated. So one thing we're doing is making these same stem cells to try to be able to monitor glucose based signals and create insulin in response to them. So we're in the early stages of that project, but there's no reason you couldn't make, for example, a piece of cartilage that now serves as an insulin producing implant. 
because again, they're based on stem cells, so we can program that genetic circuit into them any way we want, and we can layer multiple circuits. This first paper was just one circuit, really. There's no reason we couldn't have multiple signals, multiple inputs, multiple outputs, so that we really make them much smarter than they normally are, and then can use that to address more complex disease states. That would especially make a difference in the autoimmune form of diabetes where the body is attacking its own pancreatic cells. And so if you have this cartilage that is kind of hiding from the immune system, then that would be amazing. Exactly. Yeah. So on the autoimmune front, you mentioned that a bit. There's the rheumatoid arthritis, but what other aspects of autoimmune inflammation? Is that the only one or is it other aspects of autoimmune disorders that you're looking at here? Yeah, so that's the primary target that we're, we're looking at now. And rheumatoid arthritis is, has been our first target mostly because we know these drugs work, but they only work in a fraction of people and they do have these major side effects. So most of our focus is going to be on that area right now, mostly as proof of concept. If this works, we know that the system can work and can be tuned so that it responds with the right amount of drug and turns off at the right time and hopefully avoids the side effects that you have from, from just lots, taking lots of these drugs continuously. And the cost, especially. These drugs are you know, nominally $2,000 a month, maybe more, for just even the protein drugs. So we hope if you have a longer-term protected ability, the long-term cost might be lower. Autoimmune diseases in that family, I think, would be easily addressed if this system works. Now I'm just tr putting it together in my head, the hurdles like translation or at least phase one, and I'm sure I'm missing something here, but people are popping mesenchymal stem cells all over the world to whatever effect, mostly ill. There's a precedent for using this TNF-alpha inhibitor. I mean, is this like low-hanging fruit? Do you think you could get trials of this, of autologous MSCs modified by CRISPR in this way and then transplant it back into the patient? Is it the, I guess, the in vitro culture and expansion of the autologous MSCs would be the barrier to entry for the FDA? I mean, you must have, have thought this through. How close is this to phase one? Those are great points. And we don't know exactly. At this point, it has a couple of things that we don't know how the FDA is going to regulate, but they are in clinical trials in other countries. So, for example, this first round, we did with induced pluripotent stem cells, iPSCs, iPSC clinical trials in Japan right now. And then the U.S. hasn't regulated through the FDA any CRISPR-modified cells yet, but those are in clinical trials in China. So we're hoping that if things go smoothly, it will be a relatively rapid transition. At the same time, we're trying other approaches that don't necessarily involve genome editing, for example, using internal circuits of the cell to drive these auto or anti-inflammatory cascades so that we can get through the FDA faster. One of the problems is that there are clinics injecting MSCs and who knows what else all over the place without showing any benefit or any clinical studies that show a you know, safety or efficacy profile. And I think that's actually going to work against the stem cell field because they're out there, there's movement to even regulate them less than they're being regulated now. So that's almost a concern for us in terms of how the stem cell field is going to go. Stem cells are currently being used for knee reconstructions and all sorts of things. And I don't know, hopefully we can get to a point where this is a safe and a good procedure that is, like you said, lower cost than the ongoing medications and treatments that people are taking currently. Yeah, well, when we get in the, into the clinic, Kiki, we're not going to have dumb cells. That's we know that much at least. No we're have dumb smart, cells. Smarter and smarter cells. Yeah, it's not just a dumb stem cell that's coming in there. It's a smarter <laughs> stem cell. Ivy League. We don't like to call them dumb. Maybe just naive. Naive. <laughs> I love it. Your research is fascinating. And I am looking forward to future of very positive results because I've got my old gymnast knees that I'm looking at. And uh, yeah, there are many people who are looking at a future of degenerating joints and arthritis potential. So hopefully this research has a bright future for helping many, many lives. Thank you for joining us on the show today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Dr. Farshid Gilak telling us about these smart cells. I won't call my cells dumb, 
but I won't even call them naive because they're old. You can't be naive and old. They're kind of like, you know, they never went to school. I'm going to call myself dropouts. All right. <laughs> dropouts. My dropout cells need an education. Dr. Gilak, please, can you give me some, you know, at least get them a GED or something. <laughs> Got to educate. Make sure they're not naive. Make sure they're not dropouts. Make sure they are just keeping on and hopefully excelling. Yeah, we'll see. You want them to excel. Yes. I would, I would like it. Your, like your, it. your cells need a tutor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there's uh, plenty of things to be uh, disappointed about in life. One of them is my cells. Is there anything else that, that we can rally around, <laughs> Kiki? Well, I'm going to rally around Dr. Gilak's research. I think it's fantastic. But at this point, let's close the show with a good old stem cell podcast rant. The rant is our chance to complain about something that bothers us and most likely bothers you. So, Dalen, what are we ranting about today? I don't know. It's a bit of a rant, but it's more of a story. The title, though, if I had to say what I'm upset about, it's other people's kids. Okay? <laughs> All right? I'm ready this for this. Oh, geek. I mean, it's bad. It's bad. Maybe it's not bad. Maybe I'm just oversensitive. I was trying to be a good dad. And so my wife was out doing some work or doing her thing, much deserved. So I had a play date because I thought it would diffuse, you know, it'd be easier for me if the kid's playing with the other kid. Great. Exactly. So one, the parent of the play date, because I don't know how these things work. So I guess I should have specified. But they came and they did a drop. Do you know what this is? The drop off play date? I didn't know that that was a thing, which is pretty much you dump your kid on me. Yes. Which is like, all right, fine, I asked for it. But here's where it gets bad. This kid, he's hanging out. They're having a good time. Not potty trained completely yet. I mean, he is potty trained Ooh. pretty well. Not wearing diapers. But the dude who's my man, he's a great kid. But he goes in and uh, he's got the number two. And he's doing it. I have a little thing that sits on the toilet so he can do it. He's doing it, his business. I'm trying to give him privacy. He calls me back in there. He calls me in, I guess, to watch. And then as I'm sitting there just trying to grimace through the thing, he says, you know what? I'd like you to read me a story. So I find myself not only taking care of this kid <laughs> during while his, his parent is out, you know, having a drink, but I'm now watching the kid poop. And then, then before you know it, I'm entertaining him while he poops. Okay, and I, I have to say my little passive aggressive thing was I didn't wipe I didn't wipe anything. That kid went home crusty. Oh, but no! I draw the line. <laughs> I draw the line, Kiki. Because other people's kids are enough. I don't need other people's <sighs> kids poop while I'm reading to them. You know, who needs to get read a story while they're pooping? Did, did you ever read kids your kids need entertainment while they're pooping? Yes, sometimes, but usually when that happened, I realized he was just, he was trying to manipulate me and yeah. Delay. Yeah, delay. and delay and I don't know. This sounds like a lesson in play date boundary setting. Yes, <laughs> I, I take responsibility. I mean, do I have to have a list of things that are okay and not okay? Because I don't know. Is <laughs> Or maybe you should let me know. Like if my kid poops, I just want to let you know he needs to be entertained. Because then I come in there, I got a whole act, tell some jokes. Yeah. But, well, you know, when it's other people's kids. Yeah, it's other people's kids. It's, it, you're like, fine, this is my kid. I'll deal with it myself. But other people's kids, all of a sudden, you're like, wait, what? So the play date, it wasn't a play date. That was this other kid's parent using you as a babysitter. <laughs> and so yeah. number one if your child is not completely potty trained, you don't just do a drop off. That's not what okay. Unless you've talked about it ahead of time and the other parent is totally fine with it. I and mean, then you're like taken by surprise. At, oh no, it's not okay. Or I mean, how you're not going to be that person. So you go, oh yeah, of course. Sure. You go run your errands. You do what you need to do. I won't. <laughs> I got you on this one. They saw I was a sucker straight away. As soon as they walked in, yeah. they were like, I'm going to ditch my kid with this kid. And yeah. then you know what? Maybe yeah. he's going to poop. Yeah. Well, you know, I didn't even have the heart to be like, yeah, you know, he pooped. I just let him go. I just acted like it never happened. And I, I'm sure they found out later when he was scratching himself. At this point, next time you're like, yeah, play date. I'm dropping off my child. 
Yeah, exactly. I'm going to go do something. <laughs> Tit for tat there. Come on. <laughs> I don't think I'm I'm ever going to see this person again, quite honestly. But hey, we'll see. You know, there's always yeah, a chance. I do have to say the play dates and what you were going for. I know what you were going for there. That gets better and easier as the kids get older. Because yeah, well, the kids, then they're just friends and they run off and they play together and they're in their bedroom or their backyard making a mess, doing whatever. And you're sitting on the couch and it's nice. Yeah. yeah I'm looking forward <laughs> to that day. And until that day, I'm not taking any more drop off play dates, Keek. It's just too much pressure. I just, yeah. it was traumatic. If I'm honest, it was a little bit traumatic. Just say no. Want a story? Playdate boundary setting. Boom. There we go. Here's a, a podcast. Why don't you listen to Stem Cell Podcast while you poop? That's what I got. <laughs> I'm going to put on this podcast for you. Yeah. Oh, and my never goodness. Come back to my house again, clearly. <laughs> yeah. All right, everyone. Be sure to send us your rant ideas on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast. You can also email us and tell us. How often you let your kids listen to the Stem Cell Podcast while they're in the bathroom. That email address is stemcellpodcast at gmail.com. All right, Dalen, that concludes episode 92 of the Stem Cell Podcast. Be sure to tune in for our next episode.